Hi, and welcome to Good Authority. My name is Eric Wooten, and I'm joined today by Lena Mosley to talk about the looming debt crises faced by many of the world's developing economies. Lena is a professor of politics and international affairs at Princeton University, where she directs the Sovereign Finance Lab. She is also the editor-in-chief of the academic journal International Organization, and she has published extensively on the politics of sovereign debt. Welcome, Lena. Thanks for having me, Eric. Lena. The World Bank in December released a report that estimated that more than half of the world's developing countries are now facing debt crises. And this includes a lot of important economies like Egypt, Ghana, Argentina, and Ethiopia. Uh, and Ethiopia actually just defaulted on its debt just last month. Um, so what is happening and why is this happening now? So there have been warnings going as far back as 2019 about a potential coming wave of defaults and debt crises in low and middle income countries. This is something that predates the pandemic. And part of that was about the accumulation of debt by many countries based on the fact that there was easier access to credit during the 2010s with the U.S. Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank keeping interest rates very low after the global financial crisis. Private investors were looking around, trying to find places where they could earn higher returns. And this led them uh, oftentimes to buy the bonds that were issued by low and middle income countries. And you saw lots of developing countries that had not been able to borrow on private markets before, countries like Ghana, for instance, going out and being able to do that. Uh, at the same time, you also have uh, the rise of China as a uh, bilateral sovereign lender. So as part of uh, its Belt and Road Initiative, Chinese policy banks get very involved in funding uh, infrastructure projects all around the developing world. So you have these governments suddenly find themselves much more able to borrow. And at the time, the interest rates on this, on this debt are quite low. And so the debt servicing costs are also not that high. Uh, and everything kind of goes along okay. Sometimes the growth that's generated by that borrowing was not as high as one would hope. Uh, and so increasingly, there are these debt burdens that need to be serviced, and that servicing burden gets bigger and bigger. Uh, so that's kind of what things look like on the eve of the pandemic. And then, of course, when the pandemic hits, these countries face the added burden uh, of dealing with the public health crisis and international markets becoming more pessimistic, right? So at the same time, uh, they have this increased financing burden and this increased need for borrowing. They also find the supply of capital drying up. And indeed, it's not only about private investors, it's also about China pulling back from its new lending. So it's kind of a bit of a perfect storm uh, these last few years in terms of countries finding themselves on the brink of crisis. Right. That's really interesting. So we had very low interest rates. We had China that wanted to lend a lot of money. And then now, of course, interest rates are increasing. So are all these countries watching the Federal Reserve as closely as American consumers are? Indeed. And, uh, you know, part of the argument now about how some of these countries might make their way out of crises or might avoid crises, despite the risk they're in, uh, is maybe the Fed will just cut rates and it'll all kind of be OK. Uh, it's probably not quite that simple for some countries because not all of the countries that face crises are doing a lot of their borrowing from private markets. But indeed, we know that there's a cyclicality to the flow of capital to developing countries. We know um, from some of my own and, and others' research that investors' attention to political risk kind of varies as a function of what's going on with U.S. Uh, interest rates. And so 
When U.S. interest rates are high, we see investors being more sort of mindful of risk. Absolutely, I think these governments are paying a lot of attention to what the Fed is doing. So maybe we can talk a little bit about what it means for a country to have a debt crisis. Um, so we have some countries, they had uh, access to cheap credit, they had a lot of loans. Now interest rates are higher, they need to service these debts, and they're, they're in trouble. So what happens to a country like that? And maybe you can give an example of a country that's been facing these issues. Right. Well, I think one thing to keep in mind is that um, when we talk about the kind of debt burdens and debt crises, I think we're often talking about a broader set of countries that are still able to service their debts, but are really facing uh, increased difficulty in doing so. Uh, and then, of course, you can sort of go down the line and get to countries that simply stop paying their debt servicing costs. And so that's when you're really in a default. You might take the case of Ghana, which uh, stopped paying its private bondholders in December of 2022. Uh, but that was after um, you know, a couple of years of discussion about the burden being too high, an attempt to renegotiate with their official creditors, um, some attempts, which they eventually do, to restructure with their domestic debt holders. And so, you know, it, it's maybe less of a particular break point uh, and more of a, of a continuum. Right now, uh, on average, developing countries spend about 13% of their budgets on debt servicing, that is on making the interest payments on the debt that they've uh, they've taken out. And just to put that in context, that's about twice uh, what the ratio was 15 years ago. So the International Monetary Fund reports that 2022, which is the last year for which they have data, is the highest debt service expenditure on record ever. And I think what's important to know is that that 13% of the budget spent doing debt service is often more than these governments spend on education, healthcare, uh, and other kinds of social programs. So when we're thinking about debt crisis, it's often this idea that governments are having to spend more and more of their revenues to deal with their interest payments. That creates economic problems in terms of not being able to sort of help the poorest in society. Uh, it's also a political problem because what governments might find themselves needing to do in the face of those higher debt servicing costs is they might need to cut spending or they might need to increase taxes. Uh, and of course, neither of those is going to be popular with at least some of their of their constituents. Um, so, you know, the term austerity often gets used here. We think about governments needing to make cuts as a means of continuing to service their debt. Yeah, and and the, and the World Bank was talking in its report about a potential lost decade of growth, right? If the world doesn't do anything, so is there a lot of evidence that uh, countries that are having a hard time repaying their debts have these longer-term consequences in terms of increased poverty, lower growth, maybe more political unrest? Absolutely. And, you know, that that lost decade phrase uh, is not something the World Bank invented, right? It's a phrase that's used to refer to what happened, especially in Latin America, but also elsewhere um, in the developing world after the debt crisis of the early 1980s, right? This idea that in addressing that crisis, countries uh, often experience negative or, uh, or no economic growth. And then also that this has distributional consequences, right? That those that are sort of in the most precarious positions in society end up bearing the brunt of low growth and of government spending cuts. And I think in some ways it's made worse now 
by the fact that many of these countries are also facing the you know immediate issue of uh, dealing with climate change and thinking about adapting or mitigating climate change, right? Which again, right, generates new needs for financing uh, in an era when many governments don't have enough money to begin with. Right. And that's a big topic in climate change, that we have this massive need for new investment. But when capital becomes more expensive, it, it becomes a lot harder to uh, to do all of that. So, so what can a government do when it faces difficulties repaying its debt? Where can it turn to? Right. So we can think about my story about uh, governments being in crisis and facing these added debt servicing costs and sort of what they do. I mentioned one thing they might do is try to make cuts, but they also might decide that they don't want to make those cuts for domestic political reasons. They're worried about re-election. They're worried about coups. They're worried about protests. What they often will do is they will seek assistance from their creditors in uh, restructuring or rescheduling their debt. That is to say, they will come along and say, we know we have these obligations, we want to repay them eventually, uh, but we can't do it on the current terms of the loans. So they'll be asking their creditors perhaps to reduce the principal that's owed eventually, uh, but often to spread out the payments or to reduce the interest rates, or perhaps to make repayment conditional on things like uh, commodity prices, if you're a, an oil exporter, for instance. So some effort to kind of renegotiate with creditors to restructure those debts. Uh, and depending on from whom you've borrowed money, have you borrowed from other governments? Have you borrowed from the World Bank? Have you borrowed from private markets? Uh, those restructuring negotiations are going to look a little bit different. Right. That was going to be my next question. How is that going to work? Right, Because you said, OK, these developing countries have increasingly been borrowing from private creditors. They've also increasingly been borrowing from China. And it's sometimes a little bit harder to know how much they've borrowed exactly from China. They might own debt to multilateral organizations like the IMF and the World Bank or to countries like the United States. How do you get all these creditors together and, and renegotiate sort of how you're going to repay those loans? Right. So one thing we've seen the last decade or so is this increased diversity of creditors. I like to point out that for governments that are borrowing money, this creditor diversity was a real opportunity. So if you wanted to go and finance a project, but you did not necessarily want to be bound by the World Bank's conditions, you might instead turn to a Chinese policy bank to finance that same project. Uh, as you suggest, if you're a government that maybe does not want to be as transparent as you ought to be about what you're doing, you might also find a creditor like China appealing because they tend to not necessarily share the details of what's going on. Um, on the other hand, other governments sort of thought that it would be a real strong signal of how well they were doing if they were able to issue bonds in private markets, right? They could say, we used to have to borrow from the World Bank or from the government of France, but now private investors trust us. This is something that the Ghanaian government got a lot of credit for. And so I, I want to sort of remind us that that diversity of creditors, I think, felt like an opportunity for many governments. The problem, of course, is when countries get into distress and they have to try to get all of their various creditors to fall in line with one another. You could imagine if you are... China and uh, you're owed money by Egypt and Egypt comes along and says, well, we want to restructure and we want to reschedule our debt. You're, you're going to say, well, are your other creditors going to do that for you as well? 
because I don't want to restructure your debt so you can then turn around and take the money you saved and pay off your bondholders, right? So everybody in that sort of creditor pool is worried about what's known as the comparability of treatment. So this generates a real problem, right? Because it means that any creditor or group of creditors can really sort of hold up the process of negotiating. And there's a couple of ways that uh, this, is, this has been dealt with. The big umbrella framework right now is called the Common Framework for Debt Treatments, which was agreed to in 2020 under the auspices of the G20. And so the Common Framework sets out a process by which governments negotiate with these various creditor groups, and that until the various creditors each kind of sign on, you don't get a deal. And so it's meant to address some of these worries about intercreditor equity. That framework also has a central role for the international monitor monetary fund. So the idea is if you are seeking treatment of your debt under the common framework, uh, you're going to go to the International Monetary Fund. They are going to do an assessment of your debt about how sustainable your debt is. And then you're meant to go back to your creditors and say, okay, well, now we need to talk with you about getting an amount of relief that's going to get us down to the sustainability level. So that's how it's supposed to work. It sounds complex. Yeah, well, yes. And there's, you know, there, there are these great sort of diagrams one can find of this and you sort of look at it and, and, and it makes your head spin. It's got a couple of, of, of issues that have become very evident. One is that that's only a framework for low income countries. It's about not quite 75 countries that are eligible for that by virtue of their income per capita. So a country like Sri Lanka is actually too wealthy to seek treatment of its debt under the common framework. But the bigger problem is, you know, you still have this issue of getting creditors to cooperate. The way the common framework has worked is you're supposed to go first to your official creditors, right? Those two other governments that have made government to government loans. The more traditional uh, set of official creditors are countries like the US, Germany, France, Sweden, a set of countries that for a long time have gathered in a club called the Paris Club. Now, China is not part of the Paris Club. They have observer status there, but they're not sort of officially part of that collective attempt. And so countries like Zambia or Pakistan find themselves needing to get China on board as well. One thing that, that we found in our research is China's presence as an official creditor really complicates getting a Paris Club deal. And especially if you are geopolitically distant from the U.S., you become much less likely to get a restructuring of your Paris Club debt. A second one I'll just mention quickly is that we've seen these instances where the official creditors do manage to make a deal, but then they find themselves unable to coordinate with the private sector, right? They actually take the position that the private sector isn't doing enough, isn't taking a big enough loss. So you've got, you've got to get the official to all coordinate among themselves, but you also have to get the official to work with private creditors. Right. And this, this all sounds incredibly complex and difficult and probably also very politically controversial, given that, of, uh, especially in the US, for example, uh, politicians might worry that China is going to get repaid more than the United States or other official creditors, right? And so with the private creditors, is there any um, effort to try and think of, of other types of solutions? Well, is it, are people working towards a, a bankruptcy for countries or so where you can resolve this in court like you would do if you're not a country, but a business or another type of organization who has a lot of debt to private creditors? There has been talk for at least a couple of decades uh, and, and actually longer than that um, about 
creating some sort of international bankruptcy court, right, that, that, that sovereigns could use. We see talk about this when there are waves of crises. Uh, we see maybe some modest reforms being made, but we never kind of quite get enough international political support to create an institution like this. And I think, you know, in, in the current environment, where we see so much pulling back from cooperation in the kind of traditional post-World War II international institutions, it might be even more challenging to do this. One innovation that did happen in the early 2000s was putting clauses into sovereign bond contracts that set lower thresholds for collective action. And they basically say, well, let's say 85% of the bondholders will take the deal, then the deal can get voted through and it applies to everybody, right? So it's kind of trying to, to deal with this holdout creditor problem. But I think the bigger the bigger thing you're pointing to is that you know private creditors don't necessarily like taking losses on their debt. And governments like the US have not always been supportive of doing some kind of more formalized sovereign debt restructuring mechanism. And part of that seems to be the domestic politics of the U.S. financial sector uh, not always being on board with this, right? So it's all about how much do the borrowing countries need to bear the burden of austerity and making cuts? And how much do investors need to bear the burden of having bought risky assets? That tension about kind of who's to blame when something goes wrong is, I think, behind this hesitancy to create some kind of international process for the re resolution of sovereign debt crises. Right. So there's this politics on both sides here is, uh, is what you're saying as well, right? So there seems to be... Um, Concern, of course, you don't want to give private investors the idea that they can invest in, in these assets like these developing countries that are that are very risky without taking some risk. But on the other hand, you don't want to encourage it on the other side either. Um, there also seem bigger international political issues here. So some of these countries that are now facing these debt prices are, are politically and strategically very important, like Egypt and, and Pakistan. Um, so when big banks are in trouble, we say if some of these banks are too big to fail. Are some of these countries too big to fail? Are we going to see the U.S. Um, and other countries bail them out because of more bigger sort of political issues and political reasons? Yeah, I mean, I think a kind of classic example of this is Russia's economic and financial crisis in the late 1990s. There, there was a sense that really the, the U.S. and others uh, internationally really had to support what looked like at the time Russia's economic and political transition, you know, toward democracy and toward uh, Western style capitalism. And that that meant, uh, you know, making sure that the flow of funds continued, even as the fiscal picture didn't look good. You know, what ended up happening, of course, was private investors kept lending to Russia because they knew that the U.S. would push for them to be bailed out if they got into trouble and the IMF would keep giving them money. And of course, much of that money ended up not being used for productive purposes, but in the hands of the oligarchs. But I think that was it was a classic kind of for geopolitical reasons, right? We cannot let this country experience this massive crisis. And so it's like, we just got to keep the money coming. I think one of the interesting things about the contemporary set of debt crises is many low-income countries have worried 
that they are not politically relevant to the United States um, or other large countries. And because of that, nobody is going to come along and bail them out or nobody is going to put pressure on the IMF or on the private investors to extend new capital to them. So I think if you're a country like Sri Lanka, for instance, you kind of worry that, you know, as much as you might have a port that the Chinese might want to be able to access, right, you're not kind of big picture enough to get that attention. And so I I do think we might see maybe more impetus to act uh, on the part of the U.S. if it is a country like Egypt or a country like Pakistan that is that's facing that crisis. I think what's interesting to then think about is whether that action involves the creation of a broader multilateral effort to deal with this across the board versus that action is more one-off. You know, my guess is that that kind of too important to fail logic will matter, but it's going to mean there's going to be a a difference in treatment uh, across countries that are facing similar crises. So, so a lot of these issues around debt, they're, they're very technical and they're very complicated to understand. But, but ultimately, we care about these issues because, because of this, um, there, there threatened to be a, a large increases in poverty, um, human suffering in a lot of countries, and also potentially political unrest. Uh, are there particular countries you're worried about most that you feel are sort of on the brink of um, suffering bad political and economic consequences because of the debt crisis they're facing? Right. If you look at at recent data from uh, from Bloomberg, they point out that there are 13 countries whose private sector sovereign debt is at levels that suggest, you know, really extreme distress. You know, private investors are really not willing to extend new credit. That means that interest rates are going up not only for governments, but for other actors in the economy. So it means often that firms have a hard time getting access to credit. That's going to have implications for employment. Banks locally have a hard time getting access to foreign money as well. That's going to lead to problems with consumer credit too. And, uh, And, you know, some of these are countries that we've talked about a bit already. I've mentioned uh, Sri Lanka's crisis, where you've definitely seen big increases in rates of poverty. I mentioned Ghana, which was a success story in the last decade, but now again has has these issues. You know, Zambia has been in crisis since 2020. They've had a, a change of government. They've had some progress on trying to resolve it, but still very much. And you mentioned Egypt and Pakistan. We also see Tunisia is also facing uh, a significant crisis and would be remiss, of course, if we didn't think about about Argentina, which is kind of, you know, has had uh, repeated waves of default and crisis. But again, where, uh, you know, there is there's a long running, not only debt burden, but also a collapse of the exchange rate and a real real amount of human suffering that comes from that. Lebanon is the most extreme here in terms of the kind of collapse of their financial system, as well as the debt crisis, right? So if you look at the premium on their debt, it's kind of like the most extreme in this. And of course, again, it's a country that is in a strategically important location now, um, but is mired in this deep economic crisis where it seems very difficult to get the varying political factions on board to do something to pull out of that crisis. And then finally, I'll just say, um, Ukraine, of course, also had a debt restructuring uh, back in 2015, needs more today. But I think Ukraine will maybe be okay because of all the attention of the West to uh, the various challenges that it, that it faces. Right. And in some of these countries you've mentioned, we've seen some radical political changes as well. So Argentina is a good example that just elected a, a president who has some very radical solutions uh, for this. 
Um, is there any hope for Argentinians that these might work, or do you see other types of solutions that that uh, that politicians uh, are trying that that maybe seem a little bit unorthodox? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that it's always useful to notice that, at least in some cases, the rhetoric of politicians when they're campaigning versus what they do when they get into office can be a little different, right? So that's to say, we often see these more non-traditional and more extreme candidates moderate a bit once they get into office and kind of see the the fiscal realities of things. But it's often the case that these more populist candidates, um, as in Argentina, will take the view of, you know, we uh, here in our country have to push back against elites. And those are, you know, foreign financial elites are often sort of part of that. But, you know, it's not clear if you are um, a poor person in Argentina, that the country being sort of more cut off from international capital markets to, is going to help the, uh, the situation. You may remember, that there was an effort in El Salvador uh, a couple of years ago to sort of put everything into Bitcoin, uh, which was a bit of a disaster. So, you know, that's, a, again, a sort of maybe a, a radical way of dealing with it, but not one that has been terribly effective. You know, some countries also, and I, I put Ecuador on this list, some countries have taken the move to place their domestic currencies with a foreign currency, right? And I think that that's a, a move that happens when so much confidence in the currency has been lost, not only by foreign investors, but also by the domestic public, uh, that it might make sense to do something like dollarizing that, right? But then the trouble you get into is then all of your borrowing is in that US dollar, and so there you have to uh, be able to generate dollars to service your debt down the line. And you're really giving up autonomy around, around your economic policy. Yeah. So there's no easy way out. So Lena, thanks so much for, for helping us understand all of this a lot better than, uh, than I certainly did before. Um, it was great talking to you. Great. Thanks for talking to me, Eric. Good Authority's mission is to bring insights from political science to a broader audience. Everything we publish, including this podcast episode, is freely available with no paywall or subscription fee. All Good Authority content are under a Creative Commons license and can be copied and redistributed as long as the work is attributed to us and any changes are noted. We'd like to thank our funders, especially the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Democracy Fund, and Vanderbilt University. You can find links to what we mentioned in this episode on our website, goodauthority.org. Thank you.